Bird's Eye View is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. BaltimoreSportsReport.com. Welcome back to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for a lack of insight and for baseless opinion. Today is April 17th, 2017, and this is episode 197. My name is Jake English. And I'm Scott Magnus. And in this episode, we will talk to the podcast host of Baseball by the Book, Justin McGuire, who has the unhappy unhappy happenstance of being an Orioles fan. And we're also going to talk about the natural and everything amazing that he is doing on a daily basis for the Baltimore Orioles. And we'll do all that right after we lubricate the show. That's right. It's time for the drink of the week. Scott Magnus, what is your drink of the week? Jake, I am doing a 21st Amendment Brewery Brew Free or Die Blood Orange IPA. And what do you think of this beverage? Uh, I'm actually very happy with this beverage. Um, I'm normally a really like it from 21st century or really hate it from 21st century. This one goes into my, oh, yes, what a beer collection. So, yes, don't tread on me. I, I'm actually terrified as to what makes it into your, oh, boy, what a beer territory. Uh, it's certainly not going to be a Michelob Ultra. <laughs> I am not drinking Michelob Ultra, <gasps> strangely enough. Yeah. I've actually gone to one of my—this is probably uh, one and two. This is my second favorite beer, probably. Uh, Snake Dog IPA from Flying Dog, a a classic in my, in my estimation. I really enjoy this beer. Uh, so with that, if you want to find out what other beers we are drinking throughout the week, check us out on Untapped. I'm at MEGN8606. I'm at JakeE4025. We would love to know what is your drink of the week— Join us socially, but before you do all that, make sure you check out the medical wing. Oh, I gotta take a little. And it's, trust me, it's not okay if you giggle. There is no giggling this week in Medical Wing. Lots of bad news, folks. Lots of bad news. So, uh, where to even start? Um, let's start with Chris Tillman, since he's been the longest tenured individual on the Medical Wing this season. Came out tonight for his rehab assignment uh, in Bowie today. Pitched 42 pitches. Uh, velocity was somewhere around 88 to maybe 91 miles per hour. Maybe. Maybe. Do you believe the gun? Uh, I believe the guns of the people that were operating and not the guns in the stadium. Uh, the fact that there were scouts in the stands and um, the fact that, um, I'll be honest, the fact that John Mioli, who's a previous somewhat scout, um, uh, was there and basically calling out the numbers, I completely have faith in the numbers he's calling out. All right. Is that a big uh, issue of concern for you? Do you think that he'll work his way up through the velocity? I, I think he'll work his way up, but the fact that he's at 88 to 89, we'll call it, uh, is certainly um, scary is the best way to put it. So um, I'm in a wait and see policy, but I'm not as confident as I was before. Dude, you are the bluebird of unhappiness. I'm going to give you the middle thing. Oh, no, it's strained. Uh, Joey Rickard. Left middle finger strain. Let me ask you this. Have we heard anything since he went on the DL? I want to know if he's been Wally Pipped. No. No, he hasn't. I think right now when he comes back from the disabled list, right. he's probably going to be sent to the minors. Why? You've got Who Craig Gentry. We, well, okay. Craig Gentry. All right. All right. Yeah. 
If not for Do Craig Gentry. Do you really want to see Craig Gentry continue to bat leadoff? Whoa, 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 whoa. What I want is totally irrelevant to All what right. the Orioles will do. What Adam Jones wants is another <laughs> matter. But uh, The big news, though, in my opinion, has to be Zach Burton going on the DL, um, which caught everyone off guard on Sunday, um, on Easter Sunday, uh, with a left forearm strain. And normally when you see here the forearm strain, um, you think the worst for pitchers. Um, Zach Burton came out and was talking about saying that uh, the injury was much more closer to the wrist um, and some of the reports that we heard through um, members of the organization indicated, too, that it probably isn't that big of a concern. But we've heard similar reports in the past for people that have got Tommy John surgery. All that we can hope is that finding out that news on Easter Sunday, that Zach Britton will rise again on the 10th day in fulfillment of the scriptures. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he throws, I can face tomorrow. What do, what do you think? Uh, is this prelude to Tommy John, or is this a minor injury that we won't even notice at the end of the year? I'm going to call it a minor injury that we're not going to notice at the end of the season. I am so hoping that's the case. Yeah, I mean, the Orioles will have like 89 losses, so it's not going to be a big deal because they're not going to do <laughs> pitching Britain that often. But uh, you want to go to 140 characters or less? Let's do it this week on the Twitters. All right. So we were originally talking about Tillman in the last segment, but this tweet comes from Brett Hollander. Um, and he tweets, Eric Bedard went 15 and 14 in parts of three seasons with Seattle. Adam Jones is now fifth all time in the 64 year history of the Orioles and home runs, along with getting Chris Tillman as part of the deal too. And, yeah. and three other guys that didn't matter. That's so again, it's a good trade. The most lopsided trade maybe in Orioles history, except for Glenn Davis. We do not speak of it. All right. Next, I want to talk about a tweet from Joe Paparato at Joe Papa tonight. Joe Papa. Tonight is a reminder for people to stop acting idiotic over a loss. There's always going to be tomorrow. Now, this was a tweet in reaction to Orioles fans' uh, reaction to that first loss of the Red Sox series. Hey, guys, guess what? The Orioles are going to lose games. Hey, guess what? They're going to lose series. (gasps) Hey, guess what? They're going to lose consecutive games. Hey, guess what? They're going to lose many consecutive games. And you know what? It's going to be okay. You know, that's that massive, massive homerism coming on Joe Pa again. Jake, I have a question for you. And my question comes from David Piskarek, and you can follow him at David Piskarek. Can Jake English tell me the home run to K ratio for the past three years for the O's as a team? Any relevance to it? Now, let me ask you this. I'm going to answer a question with a question. Uh, is he making fun of me, or did he confuse me for you? Uh, I, I think he may have got us confused. Uh, it's also possible that our listeners are mocking me openly. It is possible because you have a terrible statistical background. Let me tell you what my gut says about that. What does your gut say about this, Jake? There's not enough grit in this equation for me to give an answer. Gotcha. So you're you're basically going with, I did no research, even though it was in our show notes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I put this in this week on the Twitters and in, in uh, Rebellion decided not to look it up. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. I will take care of this. And I will post a reply to this tweet to David so that he actually can get an answer because Jake English obviously cannot tell you, but Scott Magnus can tell you this answer. You know what? I'm going to follow up your response to him in nothing but emojis. Perfect. You do very well with those poop emojis. You will go ahead and take the next one. Jake, if we're going to talk statistics, I think we need to go over to Matt Perez's tweet, um, which I actually referenced today to a certain Australian fellow. Um, you can follow Matt at, at Fan of Laundry. He writes for Camden Depot. Uh, and it goes as follows. This O's game shows problem with bullpen ERA. O's bullpen gave up four completely irrelevant runs in three innings. Leverage component is necessary. Of course, this comes back to you cannot just look at ERA uh, of a bullpen and say, oh, well, that bullpen is better than this. If we learned anything from the Orioles, it's how well they do with win probability added and also coming into high leverage situations. Currently, the Orioles are fifth in win probability added due to their relief pitchers. And right now, they're middle of the pack in terms of leverage index, probably because they've been coming into a bunch of games that are blowouts um, during the season as well. Um, the O's bullpen is one of the top bullpens in all the majors. To think otherwise by looking at ERA, um, it's terrible logic is the best way to put it. Well, let me ask you this. Sure. 
how many wins does the Orioles bullpen have? I, I, exactly. All right, why don't you go ahead and take the last one, which I'm sure is near and dear to your heart. It is. Let's get back into grit, shall we? Uh, this comes from Pete Gilbert, who tweets, of course, at WBAL Pete. So, Buck says after Mancini's second home run that Gentry grabbed his bat to hit with, went yard. Then Manny did the same thing. It's Wonder Boy come to life. Oh, yeah, baby. That yeah. sounds like some good wood. Hey, you hit two home runs with your bat, and who who says that those other guys can... Oh, hey, Rook, I'm going to take your bat. I'm going to take your bat, and I'm going to hit with it, and you're going to like it. Hey, every one of them should be using that bat right now. Does it make sense? No. Is there any scientific backing behind it? No. Does that mean they should stop? No. Hit with that bat until it breaks. And then you need to do that whole uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice thing where the shards of the bat turn into many more Wonder Boys, and we go on to win the pennant. Wow. That's as scientific as it gets. Look, you can look it up. Those numbers, they work out. I'll tell you what. Why don't you draw me a picture, and we'll analyze it, okay? I don't want to read too much into this, Mm -hmm. but there is something I do want to read into, and that is books about baseball and those that talk about it. Justin McGuire was a writer and baseball editor for Sporting News before taking his talents to the world of podcasting. Justin is the host of Baseball by the Book, in which he interviews the authors of great baseball books and tackles some of the issues near and dear to the hearts of baseball fans everywhere. Justin, thank you so much for joining us on Bird's Eye View. Uh, No problem. It's good to be here. All right. uh, So, you know, your tenure over at Sporting News comes to an end. You found yourself able to take on a passion project. I'd like to ask you this. Why uh, a podcast and why a show about baseball books? Well, um, I guess the short answer to that is I was looking for something to do. Um, I'd had this idea to do a baseball-related podcast for a while. In a previous job, before I was at Sporting News, I was the web editor of a daily newspaper, and I did some podcasts back then and we did one in particular that that got pretty popular it was sort of a pop culture related one so i kind of had it in the back of my mind that i'd like to do something like that again so when i found myself at a job i decided to do one and i i sort of went through like what what can i add to the baseball conversation there's a thousand baseball podcasts out there but one that wasn't out there that i saw as kind of a, a you know an opportunity was, um, you know, I love to read books about baseball, baseball history, biographies, statistical analysis, what have you. And I, did, I didn't think there was anything dedicated just to that. And one of my favorite kind of podcasts are when they, you know, when they interview authors of books that I might be interested in. So I thought, well, there's kind of a maybe a, a niche for me. I knew a couple of authors already from uh, from Twitter and from interviewing them when I was at Sporting News, like uh, Jeff Katz, who wrote a book about the 1981 baseball season, um, Dan Epstein, who's written several books about the 70s. Um, so I knew those guys would be on board. So I kind of asked them early on. and They said, sure. So once I had a few people lined up, I just started it. And then um, from then on, it kind of took off. And, uh, you know, I now have publishers getting in touch with me, pitching their clients and um, I have free books coming all the time. I get two or three free books a day, it seems like. So it's been a lot of fun, but and, and it's uh, been an opportunity to to meet and talk to some really interesting people. The, the podcasting sphere and like the blogging slash writing spheres are kind of different. Um, and it's interesting to talk to people and say, oh, you do a podcast. You know, that's basically a blog. And it's like, well, it's not exactly the same thing. Um, talk to me about some of the biggest surprises you had um, with starting a podcast and some of the things that you learned through the process. Well, I think the the biggest thing I learned is just that um, people will listen to it if they're interested in the content. One of the things I was really worried about was just the you know the quality of it. I'm I'm doing this out of my house on you know on a a laptop. Um, I don't have a you know good you know soundboard. I don't have a lot of fancy equipment or anything, and um, I don't even have a particularly good way of doing you know these phone interviews. I have to kind of you know it's a little Rube Goldberg approach where I'm getting a I'm uh, having to do it kind of, you know, in, in an unofficial way, kind of get the sound going into the microphone. Um, but what I found is I've not had one complaint about the sound so far. People seem to really enjoy the podcast because 
I'm having conversations with interesting people. And I think that's the other thing I've found is that the kind of podcast I do, which is totally reliant on the guests, if you find good guests, um, then you, the podcast will take care of itself. I'm kind of just along for the ride in a lot of ways. I mean, I find them and I, I ask the questions and all that. But if the person is interesting, then the podcast itself is going to be interesting. Now, we've been pretty lucky on this side. We've never really had a guest that's just turned into a total dud. And I'm not asking you to dish on anybody in specific uh, in a negative way. But I'm curious, has there been anybody that you've in, you've interviewed where you've expected the interview to go one way and it's turned out completely the opposite? Is there is there ever been a time where you found that the conversation was either, you know, completely different than you thought it was going to be or you came away thinking differently about the book than you did before the interview? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I have to think about that second part of it for a minute. I I know I've certainly had some conversations that went in different directions where, you know, what I'll do typically is, um, and and the other thing that I I pride myself on for all these books is that I actually read them, right? I read them cover to cover pretty much um, a few exceptions. There are some books that are not necessarily designed to be read cover to cover. They're list kind of books, you know, or something like that. I have one I'm doing um, tomorrow. It's the thousand best players in baseball history. And, you know, it's not a book you have to sit down and read cover to cover to get the gist of it. You know what I mean? But for the most part, I'm reading all of them. Um, so I have a list of questions based on that. And um, what, what's interesting is a few times I've gotten to where I, I don't even get to half the questions because one of them leads to something really interesting. And we kind of go off on a side note. I had a guy who um, wrote a book about, I, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but he, he, do, he just wrote a formula where he's trying to figure out fame variations on players like who was the most famous player in the given era um, based on their team success and, and how much media attention they got and all that sort of stuff and it just led to this very interesting conversation because this guy was a bit younger than I was where he was taught his thing came up with something about Tom Seaver and I was trying to say well actually Tom Seaver was one of the most famous players of his day and I think you're underselling him and we got into a whole thing about that that was just not you know it wasn't at all what I was expecting but it became a very interesting conversation so yeah sometimes they really go in directions you're not expecting but I will say this every author I've had on so far has been up to the task of being an interesting guest and I think book authors in general are pretty good at this stuff because they know their subject so well they tend to be, you know, if you're writing a book, you're somebody who is is very good communicator in general. And, they, you know, frankly, a lot of these, these people, they spend years working on these things, and they're just thrilled to have somebody to talk to about, you know what I mean? They're thrilled to have somebody asking them about this book they worked on. And, and, you know, in some cases, these aren't real bestsellers or anything. So the interest level has been fairly limited. And I think so. most of those people, most of them have been really good. I haven't had a dud yet. Well, let me put you on the spot then. Whether or not you've talked about it on the podcast, let me ask you this. What is your favorite baseball book? Well, I've been asked that a couple times, and my answers are, are – I have like two. and It's kind of boring because they're, they're books that a lot of people would probably name. But by far the most influential book, baseball book that I've ever read in, uh, in terms of influencing me and my thinking was um, the Bill James Historic Baseball Abstract which originally came out, I think, 1985. And I got that edition for Christmas one year um, when I was in college. So that's that's how old I am. Um, and I, I had read some of his annuals before that, but this just getting it all in one place and his take on the entire history of the game and on the great players, it was just eye-opening and just, just amazing. Um, and I just, to this day, I, I, it influences the way I think, not just about baseball, but just in terms of thinking about everything and questioning things and He's just such a great, you know, the thing about Bill James that's underrated is he's just, he's a great writer. He's really good at communicating his ideas. Yeah, I think, I think, if you I think that's one of the reasons he, he became so influential. Yeah, the way he's able to weave in the aspect of realism in terms of the baseball scenarios with the actual aspect of this is why it makes sense from a data standpoint is really good. Um, another book that I remember reading recently is Big Data Baseball by Travis Solchik. He did a yeah. great job of you know kind of weaving that weave of, okay, this is why it makes sense from the statistical standpoint, but also there's a realized scenario here of, the coaches were a little grumpy about this and the players were absolutely grumpy about this too. And going through the aspect of not just presenting the data, um, which has been done by like Tom Tango, for example, in the book, but also interweaving and saying there's a psychology slash, you know, story behind how this data is integrated as well. So yeah, I I agree. I, I, uh, I actually had Travis on to talk about that a few months back and I agree. That was a really good book. And he, you know, he's a guy with a newspaper background. So he's a, you know, a writer by training. Sure. Uh, And I think, 
and honestly, I, I not name names, but I do think there are some writers in the sabermetric community who I'd find hard, hard to read. Yeah, no, I completely <laughs> agree. But while they have many good ideas, they're not necessarily good at communicating them. And I think that's, like I said, Bill James or, you know, Travis, those, those are people who, to me, they, they make a big difference because they communicate the ideas. Rob Nye is another guy yep. who, you know, he, he, he early on in the, in the internet era kind of took some of these ideas of Bill James and popularized them and made them accessible to people in a way. Or Rob's another guy I've had the fortune of having on as a guest. So yeah, and the other book I just want to mention real quick, um, actually I'll mention two real quick. One is um, The Glory of Their Times by Lawrence Ritter, which if, if you haven't read that, go out and get it. It's, it's a fantastic book. It's an oral history um, where he talks to, I think about a dozen players from the early part of the 20th century, from the, basically from the dead ball era. And it's their it's their memories of playing and and written up in like each individual chapter for individual players and it's just a really it's a book you can read in a day or two and it's just fascinating and fun and interesting um, and the other book that I that I read in college that really was was extremely interesting and I, I've read it a few times since it's called Baseball's Great Experiment um, by Jules Teigel who has unfortunately passed away but it was about um, it was about the integration of baseball starting with Jackie Robinson but going beyond that. Um, so he kind of talks about the sets the scene for the integration of baseball and the political pressures that were being put on um, teams, particularly in New York City and by the black press. And and then he, but then he takes it beyond Jackie Robinson to, to the integration of other major league teams, minor league teams, um, the, the destruction of the Negro Leagues as a result. And it takes it back basically into the early 60s when the Negro Leagues finally just kind of folded. Um, but it's just a fascinating, well-written book, and I, I'd recommend that to anybody who's interested in baseball history. All right. So I, I would like to point out a difference between your podcast and ours, if, if we could, uh, for just a moment. Here's the thing. Um, we are incredibly not proud of episode one of Bird's Eye View. Um, but I want to talk for a moment about episode one of your show, which I really enjoyed, in which you talk to the actual mayor of Cooperstown. Not, not, yeah. not That is not an honorific. That is not something that I'm, I'm saying lightly. You talk to the mayor of Cooperstown, New York, who had written a book. Um, and you, in that conversation, uh, talked about the fact that uh, movies about baseball would make an interesting discussion. And, yeah, in, and in that, you noted that the film Major League doesn't hold up very well. Now, what people think about that is neither here nor there, and I, I don't want to say anything about that. But I want to put you on the spot right here and now and have you go on the record and ask you this. What is your favorite baseball film? Yeah, well, that's, that's something I've been asked a few times, too. And, in fact, if you, go, if, you, if you listen to the episode I did with Dan Epstein about the um, – um, 1976 season. I talk about it quite a bit in there. Um, the Bad News Bears, the original movie, I, I came out when I was about eight years old and I was actually in Little League. And to this day, it's my favorite baseball movie ever. Um, and I think it holds up incredibly well. It's still really funny. It, it, they show it on MLB Network all the time still. You can catch it. And it's just, it, Walter Matthau's great. Tatum O'Neill's great. Jack Earl Haley's great. It's just it's funny, it's raunchy, it's it's you know it doesn't have the Hollywood ending they end up losing in the end. It's just it's just a great movie, and I I I'll watch it two or three times a year and just still laugh at it. All right, so we we recommend everyone run, not walk to your nearest podcast source to go pick up this podcast. But Justin, we've got you here. Uh, you you are a man who knows baseball. You have a national uh, baseball writing experience and. You have that um, you have that uh, honor of also being an Orioles fan. So I need you to do me a favor. I want you to talk Orioles to me. I have a few O's questions, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, what do you make of the Orioles' hot eight and three start? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, it seems like basically they do this every year now. <laughs> they get off to a good start, and you're kind of like. Your expectation, my expectations have already increased for the season after a week, you know, two weeks, because you know I think like every like a lot of people, I probably my basic expectation was you know this is probably a seventy nine to eighty three win type team, you know, um, but now you get off this hot start and you start thinking, well maybe they could maybe they could do what they did last year, maybe they can win eighty nine games, maybe they can win ninety, be a wild card team. So yeah, it's it's been. It's been nice to see him get off to a good start. Bundy has certainly been really encouraging in what he's done so far. 
Um, it's nice to see Trey Mancini hitting because that gives them another source of offense when, you know, Davis and Trumbo get into their inevitable slumps. Um, I, I'm still really worried about, you know, the rotation, though, as I think everybody is. One, one, you know, Gossman and Bundy, you know, even, even them, you know, we certainly we don't know what we're going to make of them, but we, we at least can feel some sense of confidence when they're pitching. But beyond that, I mean, is anybody going to feel confident when Wade Miley's pitching? And then it just gets worse from then on out. So, you know, I think a lot of it's going to, a lot of it's going to hinge on Tillman, whether he can get back healthy um, and effective. And if he does, and then Gossman and Bundy continue to pitch well, you know, this is a team that maybe could make a run for a wild card. No, I, I totally agree. It's It comes back to, I think we looked at the American League East, and you can say, eh, you know, they're maybe a mid-80s team at best. But again, there's always that deviation and potential to basically break 90. I still think you look at the Red Sox as, you know, the best talented team in the entire division. But Absolutely. coming back to the Orioles um, and getting a little bit more statistically inclined, Justin, on a scale of one to total fanboy, how excited <laughs> should we be about Dylan Bundy at this time? How excited should we be? Yeah. Because um, I'm in total fanboy mode right now after seeing some of the sliders. I, I think, I, you know, I'll, I'll say this. I would say that's that's a nice that's an appropriate response because you know what that's that's the fun of being a fan. The fun of being a fan is seeing what Dylan Bundy has done and saying all the things we thought about him are going to come true. He's going to be a dominant pitcher. He's going to be a Cy Young candidate. And, you know, maybe it's not true, but what's the what's the fun in like trying to analyze it right now? Let's just enjoy the ride while he is pitching well. And, and yeah. not to, and not to mention too, it's not so much the aspect of like the Cy Young. It's the filthiness. You just watch that slider just oh, drop yeah. off the map, and you're just like. Gosh, that looks so good. Like, why can't we see pitchers do that all the time as the Orioles? And it just shows you somewhat of the talent that it was is there and has been there behind the curtains. And finally, he's starting to evolve now that he's healthy into yeah. potentially a major league pitcher. And certainly, things could go off the tracks very quickly. I mean, this is the Baltimore Orioles here, and it's pitching. Um, so when those two are combined next to each other, uh, you're generally left with a soggy jigsaw piece is the best way to describe it. Um, it's funny because I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how old you guys are, but I, I grew up in the '70s, so I grew up where the Orioles were synonymous with great pitching, and it, it's kind of sad how it's become the exact opposite, <laughs> and it, you know, and fair, fairly so because I was talking to somebody, and you know, who's the last true ace quality player the Orioles produced, like ace quality pitchers, probably Messina, yeah. and that's yeah. 25 years ago. Yeah, so that's that's a long time to go without producing at least one you know, legitimate ace Cy Young type candidate, you know, um, and may, maybe Bundy is that guy. Maybe Gossman is that guy. They certainly, you know, ha- haven't proven it yet, but I think both of them have the talent to do it. And we just got to see if maybe, maybe the Orioles will actually let them do it. <laughs> it's, 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 something is, something has been holding back the Orioles pitcher. And the funny thing about Musina was too, you know, when Musina was coming off through the organization, of course, Ben McDonald, of course, was drafted in 89 and it was, well, Ben McDonald's going to be ace on this team, and Musina was somewhat of an afterthought. Like, eh, he'll be a second or third pitcher. But Musina turned into that Hall of Fame type pitcher, where Ben unfortunately flamed out due to a few injuries here and there. But it, it's just interesting to see um, how Orioles, Orioles pitching has developed over the thirty years. And unfortunately, like you said, uh, the seventies certainly had a plethora of Orioles pitchers that were great. Unfortunately, me and Jake were. Uh, born uh, a year after the uh, last World Series championship. Hey, hey, speak for yourself, sir. I watched that World Series in a onesie. Thank oh. you very much. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, I watched the World Series, and I'll tell you, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and well, I'd like to get, I'd like to experience that again. Well, the the, the tragic of Orioles baseball is this. So uh, the last time the Orioles, before 2012, the last time the Orioles made the playoffs, uh, I was I was in middle school. And right. the next time that the Orioles made the playoffs, I was sending my daughter to kindergarten. So, you know, it's it's a it's an entire lifetime. So the next time <laughs> that we the, waited. So the next time the Orioles get to the playoffs, you'll be in a nursing home, is what I'm hearing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for, for me, it's uh, you know, I was in I was in my late twenties in '97, and then by the next time they made it, I'm in my forties. You know, in an entirely different point in my life as well. So yeah, it's it's a long time to go. Especially in the wild card era, that's a long time to go without a playoff spot. So let me and, uh, let me try to ask a question that won't make me sob uh, because we're we're so close on that edge. Um, Scott asked about uh, Dylan Bundy. I want to ask about the other end of the rotation. As you as you noted, the back end of the rotation is uh, questionable. Hot would, garbage. Yeah, <laughs> questionable would be a polite way to put it. But let me ask you this: yeah, that would uh, be the Jim Hunter Masson view of. <laughs> <laughs> 
Was Alec Asher's start against the Blue Jays a flash in the pan, or might he be a serviceable fifth starter? Well, you know, my instinct is to say it's probably a flash in the pan. But on the other hand, you know, we, what did you expect from Miguel Gonzalez when he came in mm-hmm. a few years ago? I mean, I don't think anybody expected it. And he turned out to be a serviceable end-of-the-rotation guy for a few years. Um can he, you know, can he be like that quality? I, I probably, but I, I don't. I wouldn't count on. I'd like to see what he, you know. Did, they just sent him back down, didn't they? I think they sent him back yeah. down uh, already. So, and of course, we know how that goes with the Dan Duquette yo-yo of, of uh, pitchers, particularly. Um, I'd be interested to see what you know what he does after a few more starts, because chances are he will get more starts. But there does, there's not really anything in his background to lead me to believe he's going to be a you know a great major league pitcher, but. Is he capable of being a four or five guy? You know, I think that's certainly possible. I mean, you look at Asher's numbers in terms of being a sinker ball pitcher. Um, certainly having an infield defense like the Baltimore Orioles, that certainly helps. Um, yeah, it's just a question, sure. again, of, you know, how do the scouting boards come out against Asher? I mean, we look back a few years ago, and it was Mike Wright came out there against the Angels and shut them down. Um, and then two starts later, it was, wow, this Mike Wright guy isn't that good um, because <laughs> – the scouting reports came out. So I think the Asher scouting report will come out for the American league pretty quickly, but I completely agree with you looking at some of the models and looking at if that sinker actually does as well as it's going to do, he could easily be a Miguel Gonzalez type fourth or fifth starter, which to a certain regard, you know, every single team needs to have that someone called six starter as it were, just to get through uh, injuries that occur throughout the season. Um, yeah, absolutely. Talking about kind of similar to the pitching, I want to go into um, the individual behind the plate with Wellington Castillo coming in. Um, certainly when he came in this year, um, from a defensive standpoint, there was a lot of concern about pitch framing and how he would call games because, you know, a lot of people were very familiar with Matt Wieters and we weren't sure exactly how, what Caleb Joseph's role was going to be this year based off his poor offensive performances. In, in terms of just a quick, uh, small sample size, what have been your initial impressions of Wellington Castillo behind the plate? Um, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't looked very carefully at his pitch, at his you know pitch framing numbers and the stat cast stuff, so I'm not exactly sure what they would show you. I mean, you know, it doesn't appear to me that he's been particularly bad, but again, that's just kind of an eyeball thing. I, I haven't really looked at the numbers behind it, so I don't really have a good I don't really have a good answer to that, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the one thing, you know, looking at the first game, pitching was awful. And ever since then, it's been okay. But just in terms of some of the pitch selection, I thought would be interesting, Justin, is just he's been calling that fastball a little bit more. Whereas last year, sometimes weeders would get reluctant to call the fastball for like Galsman. Um, so I'm not sure if there's a greater reluctance where Wellington's turning to the dugout and saying, how do you want me to pitch? Or if there was anything going on there. But um, so far, I think in an early sample size, it hasn't been a disaster. And for Orioles baseball... That's always a positive. <laughs> exactly. Orioles baseball, not a disaster. Exactly. <laughs> Call the PR yeah, staff up. I mean, yeah, it certainly hasn't been a disaster in terms of the results. We know that. Um, so, yeah, I, I would be interested in taking a, a better look at the you know, the numbers behind it and see what they say. But, um, yeah, as you said, though, he certainly came in with a reputation of not being a particularly good pitch framer. Uh, and maybe the change of leagues will help. You know, who knows? Although, you know, the umpires are both leagues now, so yeah. I don't know that, that makes much difference um, like it would in the old days. Um, but yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. And he, he's been hitting, you know, well enough to justify his, his his position so far. So, you know, lots of Orioles fans are gleefully digging a grave for the Blue Jays uh, here in April. Is the situation for the Toronto club that dire, or are they just having a bad week that happens to be at the beginning of the season? Yeah, I, I've been actually. I, I was on a radio show this morning. They asked me about the, the Blue Jays. It's. Um, you know, it's so hard to say because, you know, it, they're obviously a team that made the playoffs the last two years. It's, it's you know, it's so early. You don't want to write them off. On the other hand, 2-10 and 10 is a tough hole to get out of. Historically, I, I think I'm not sure any team has ever made the playoffs after starting 2-10. and 10, Or if they have, it's very few. You know, there's not a whole lot of teams. Plus, they're in a tough division. We know that. They've already, you know, gotten off to a really bad re- record within the division. And... You know, you guys watched those games. They didn't look like a very good team, did they? Yeah. I mean, there wasn't anything very impressive about the Blue Jays. Jose Batista looks completely lost at the play. Donaldson's been injured. Um, Tulowitzki hasn't looked very good. I'm just right now. They're just not a good team. And if they don't right the ship and get, you know, if they could get get into a, a situation where they win, you know, ten of twelve or they win thirteen of nineteen or something like that, they might be okay. But 
they can't afford to tread water because they're already eight games under 500. And it's, you know, the middle of April. And so that that's just a tough hole to get out of. Sure. Um, all right. So the other team that Baltimore fans don't, of course, like to talk about, of course, is the New York Yankees. And I think most people knew coming into the season that um, the Yankees had a ton of prospects that were going to come up and replace the the old horses in the stable, as it were. Um, and, and I think people didn't expect the Yankees to be as good as they have been so far this season. Um, should Baltimore fans maybe reconsider and maybe put a, a higher priority on the Yankees now as being um, in competition for the Orioles for a potential wild card spot? Yeah, absolutely. From what I've seen so far, you know, and they're doing this without Sanchez, you know, so uh, those guys, they look like they're going to have, they have some guys who can really, you know, really hit the ball. And if they can, if they, you know, they're, they're young players, so you don't know what you're going to get consistently from them. But yeah, they certainly, I mean, and I don't, there's no reason for me to believe they're not capable of winning. And again, that 85 to 90 win range that would keep them in the wild card race. Yeah. It's um, like they hit the ball really well, and they've got a good bullpen, and um, their yeah. starting pitching is a little questionable. But overall, they've got a, kind of like a good dynamic. That seems very familiar to another team we normally talk about. Hmm. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> well, and, and CC Sabathia has been the surprise so far. Yeah. He's actually looked really good. And you know, can he keep that up? If he can, that obviously puts them in a really good situation. But you know, I think we have to think maybe he's maybe this is a little bit of a fluke because he has not looked very good the last few years. And pitchers don't usually become better at this age, you know. Um, but you know, it's it's interesting, and I think Girardi is is kind of underrated as a manager. He tends to get the most out of what he has. So um, you know, I I, I and I, you know, I don't think there's any reason to believe they they are not going to be in the mix. I'll put it that way. Uh, I'm sorry, that wasn't the answer we were looking for. This is an Orioles podcast, and, and what we were hoping to hear was, no, well, it's all smoke and mirrors, they're a terrible team, and they will fall flat on their face. Well, the thing that's really scary about the the Yankees is, you know, this year, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe they're a wild card contender, but they're probably not going to be a great team. But what are they going to be in 2018, 2019? I mean, this could be a very scary team for a long time, starting in a couple of years. And, you know, maybe, maybe with Manny Machado on the team, maybe with Bryce Harper on the team, um, added to those those young players are bringing up now. Um, this this might be the year to get him because I think we might be entering a, uh, another Yankee golden era in a couple of years. And, and going back to breaking my heart. And I'm crying again. <laughs> there are literally tears rolling down my cheek. You know what? We need to take care of some some business, as it were. We need to ask you the most important question of this podcast. When it comes to our guests, there is no more serious moment than this. So, so Justin, our question is, what is your drink of the week? My drink of the week? Um, well, if you've looked at my Twitter account, you know that I have a my pic- Twitter prov- profile. Not my profile picture, but the other picture is two draft beers next to a baseball glove. So that's kind of something that was a story that we worked on at a uh, sporting news where that was an illustration that I used that for. So I'm a, I'm definitely a beer guy. Um, I like to go around to breweries, you know, the here in North Carolina, we have a ton of them in, uh, you know, in the Charlotte area and then in Asheville and all that. So I don't know that I have a specific drink, but I do love to go and, you know, drink sample like the flights at different breweries and that kind of thing. So yeah, I don't know that I have a specific one, but I'll just say I'll just say beer is my drink of the week. <laughs> that works. All right, craft beer almost yeah, makes up beer. for the Yankees worship that just came out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I, w- I hope I'm wrong. From your lips to God's ears. All right, uh, Justin McGuire, you are uh, uh, the host of the Baseball by the Numbers podcast, which you can find on Twitter, by the way. Base- at, baseball by the book. I'm sorry, baseball by the book <laughs> at baseball book pod and we can find you on on uh twitter at uh jay mcguire mlb correct that's correct those are the two twitter accounts that i run now what can what can you tell us do you have anything in the uh in the hopper that you can tell us about well one that would be of interest to you guys and your audience um there's an author who i've already made contact with he has a book coming out i think it's supposed to come out in may sometime uh, it's it's called Something Magic, and it's about the 1979 to 1983 Orioles. Nice. He looks at that at that period when they, you know, obviously starting with the 79 team that lost the World Series, ending with the 83 team that won the World Series. Um, you know, sort of. The, so you got a lot of Eddie Murray, a lot of you know some Cal Ripken's early years, uh, uh, Earl Weaver's last year. 
and that sort of thing. And I've been in contact with him. He's going to come on as soon as the book comes out. Um, so that's one that will definitely be of interest to the Orioles fans. Yeah, that's some really interesting years in there because people just go right from 79 to 83 almost all the time. In fact, my dad doesn't really talk um, about anything past the 79 thing because he left the game seven of 79. And I asked him stories about this to the day. And he's like, we don't talk about that game. We will never talk about that game. So um, that will be a very interesting book that I can kind of fill in the gaps of um, stories that my father didn't tell me, basically, because he was still still heartbroken. Yeah, well, I mean, 1980, they won 100 games, didn't yep. make the playoffs. 1982, they they start they were uh, went into a the final week the series of the week of the the final series of the year down three games to the Brewers in a four game series, swept them in a doubleheader on Friday, beat them Saturdays to go into the last game of the season, tied for first place. And I think we all we all know how it turned out. But yeah, yeah there there was some really interesting stuff going on in those between 79 and 83. Well, you know, lo- looking back at uh, that period of Orioles baseball, I think I think it's interesting because in the future, uh, no matter how long the rebuild after this particular window takes, I think we'll we'll probably thirteen years. I mean, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> I think we'll probably all look back and say that this, you know, twenty twelve to twenty X, whatever, whenever it ends, was a pretty good era of Orioles baseball. And for uh, folks, you know, Scotty, my my age. You know, in our early to mid thirties, uh, who missed out on the seventy nine to eighty three period and everything, therefore, uh, you know, beforehand, uh, it's it's an interesting window, I think, into what it was like to be a fan uh, at that time and and what you know the importance of being an Orioles fan was because you know for an entire generation of of fans it was just something you did because that's what your family did and oh yeah by the way it, it became worth it in uh, in 2012 but i think it's a really a really good window that 79 to 83 era uh to look at and say that was really something special yeah and it's an era that if you're not an Orioles fan you probably don't remember it particularly but it really was. I mean, it was a really good team for for that whole period. And again, they had some success. And it was a pre wild card era, so they only made the postseason two of those years. But they would have certainly made it in 1980 and 1982 had there been a wild card at that era. So it would have been very different. But yeah, it was. That's the, that was my formative experience as an Orioles fan. I was you know, 11 through 15 or whatever during that period. And, you know, that's to this day the, the period that defines my Oriole fandom. So and this this era now is kind of having a similar thing for my son, who is 13 now. So he was, you know, what he was um, nine, nine or 10 when the 2012 season came around. And that's that's sort of when he got hooked on it was, you know, following that year into the playoffs and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I agree to, to keep generations of fans going you need to have periods where your team is relevant and if nothing else the Orioles have given the fans that for the last five years all right well Justin thank you so much for for joining us again we cannot uh stress enough that everyone listening to this program that's right both of you should be uh (laughs) listening to Justin's podcast it is a great discussion of baseball and hey make sure you read the books along with the podcast Justin thanks very much fine scott let's do it we have to we have to let's talk about trey mancini all right before mancini came up for his cup of coffee last year i have to admit to not being very excited about him i mean i was suspicious that the quote-unquote best player in the orioles organization from a player uh position player standpoint was basically a backhanded compliment i thought that it spoke to the quality of the o's system more than it did his talent he was a player that was known for his bat and played a position that Chris Davis has now blocked for the next seven series, uh, seven years. So, Scott, I ask you this. Did you have high expectations of Trey Mancini when he was just a minor league guy? No. I, there was nothing per Trey Mancini that would make me say, yep, he's going to be the next big thing. Uh, wasn't appearing on any top 100 prospects. Um, at best, I wouldn't even consider him to be the best position player in the Orioles farm system. I put that on Chancisco, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, he struck me as a very much of he's Christian Walker, 
but a bit better is the best way to describe it. Um, but certainly nothing that struck me as, wow, this guy can is going to be great. The only thing that he had going for him last year was, of course, his mom in the stands cheering um, like a crazy woman, basically. Um, and that's always great to see is seeing your son coming up, hit some dingers, and then see your mom in the stands going crazy and then coming back the next night and basically doing the same thing all over again. Um, kind of hits you in the heart a little bit. And it basically shows why baseball is such a great sport in some instances. Right. So he was a fun story last year, and that could have been it. Sure. That could have been it. He could have been a flash in the pan. Like all that Steve Johnson coming up in 2012 yeah. and having a, a spot start, doing great, um, and then never to be seen again in, in the minor league organization. Sure. But then he went and he, he forced his way onto the team in spring training, right? Yeah. And and his, his bat made a statement. And here we are in the early part of the se- in the early part of the season, and it seems that his bat is backing up that statement. Um, so you know, it's a good problem to have, right? A, a player forces his way onto the team, and then for at least the early portion of it, he backs that up. I mean, are we seeing a player that is basically making Buck Showalter either ride the hot hand? or play him until he falters? I think we'll see that a lot this season coming up against the Cincinnati Reds, um, where there is no DH, so they're going to have to pick between potentially Mark Trumbo and or Trey Mancini to play that corner outfield position um, against a left-handed pitcher. Um, Certainly, I think that um, Buck is liking the way Mancini is swinging in. Of course, anybody would. But the question is, how confident is he to continue that trend um, but at the time being, there is no conversation anymore about sending him down until he gets cold. It literally is a fashion of he's up here uh, for a while. Um, and slowly but surely, the conversations of like Michael Bourne coming up and taking a spot has died away. I haven't heard any Pedro Alvarez talk. Um, it is kind of just assumed at this point that Trey Mancini has a spot and will be keeping a spot um, for the next hundred years for the Baltimore Orioles by the Baltimore Orioles faithful. So he he clearly so far can hit, and um, I think the real question is going to be this: Trey Mancini is hitting the cover off the ball, and that's great. It's great for the Orioles. It's fun to watch. Eventually, the league will adjust to him, and the question becomes: Will he adjust to the league again, or will he struggle and go back down because he 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 can't cope with it? We can't tell at this point. I mean, do you have any indication looking in his at bats? As to whether or not this is a guy that hits the fastball dead red and he's got a weakness in his swing, or is this a guy that's going to be able to make that next alteration whenever the league catches up to whatever tricks he's up to? Nothing as part of his minor league package says that he is going to be able to um, dominate. Now, I will say this much. If you look at his swing this year, it is a very nice and level swing. And there was an article that came out that said Brady Anderson helped working with him this year, which again... Brady Anderson, the soothsayer as he is, um, it'll be very interesting to see if anything changes as the scouting reports come out. But personally, I, I see this as a very Jimmy Paredes kind of scenario where the guy's absolutely hot out of spring training, absolutely hot in April and May. June and July is going to roll around, and Trey Mancini is um, not going to be looking so pretty much longer. I will say, and and I am... I do not play a major league uh, hitting coach on TV, but when I look at a swing like Mancini's and I look at a swing like Jimmy Paredes, very compact, very compact to the ball, uh, a very fluid swing, not a lot of wasted movement in Mancini's swing. I really like it. As a a right-handed hitter, you know, I don't know why it is. You like donks? I do. Okay. I do. But I think that, that Mancini doesn't have a lot of technical flaws in his swing. It's really a matter of can he hit at this level. And, you know, 11 games in, sure, he can. But the question is, can he do it from there on out? So, Scotty, I'll ask you this. Mm -hmm. We talked about Wonder Boy. Sure. Is he the natural? Mm, Jake, the only way I can kind of describe whether or not he's the natural is, well, I know you hate this. Actually, you love this, but it's through song. Small sample size, small sample sample size, small sample size, small sample size, small, small sample size, small sample size.
Jake Berlin has literally proclaimed Trey Mancini to be the next coming, the next Frank Robinson, the player that puts the Orioles over the top. There's been insane talk about trading Trey Mancini for starting pitching and anyhow. This is absolutely ridiculous. Berlin, take a step back and just remember it's small sample size. I'm furious with you. You just talked over the end of the small sample size song. Small sample size. It's a small sample size. Look, good problems to have. Absolutely good problems to have have. for the time being until it becomes a negative where he's going to hit a slow portion. He's going to get into a a situation where he's slumping. And I have a feeling that Buck Showalter is going to still run him out there in the outfield, which is a definite no-no. There has been exactly one play this season that he has misplayed where I thought to myself, oh, he's not an outfielder playing out of position. It was uh, him failing to charge a ball. He played it on a hop instead. It ended up not burning the Orioles, but I was aware of it at the time that it happened because I thought to myself, oh, this is not an outfielder playing. Sure, but the other thing, too, is you've seen him play first base, too. Chris Davis went on, was a DH at one game, and you can just look at the stretch that he has, and this was a big factor that they were talking about Mancini. He doesn't have that height and the ability to stretch as well as, as Davis does, and he doesn't have that pick aspect. So as much as we come back to say, well, Chris Davis is a great offensive, we also come back and have said multiple times, Chris Davis is doing a gold-glove caliber defense as well, and it really shows when you put a player like Mancini and or Trumbo at first base that you do lose a little bit of on a defensive standpoint as well. So the question comes down to, can he hit well enough to overcome his defensive shortcomings? You know what that means? Yeah. He's a Baltimore Oriole. That's true. The other question comes back to, if the Orioles really felt that confident with him um, going into the season, uh, why the heck did they sign Mark Trumbo? Which, again, comes back to small sample size, small sample size. So, again, great that Terry Mancini is contributing. Love it. It's helped the Orioles to win several games early in the season. But the Baltimore Orioles need to be aware that uh, eventually when he does start slumping, he needs to go back down to the minor leagues as quick as he came up to the major leagues. Simple as that. He's got options. He can go down to the minor leagues and get hot again. Take advantage of your options, which the Orioles are very good at. They just need to make sure that they pull that trigger sooner rather than later. All right, go ahead, Jake. I want to talk about the next segment. Sure. Because I have a confession to make. Oh, okay. You know, you you have challenged me to this deep cuts uh, segment. I'm not sure that I'm equal to the task because... Big fan of music. Yeah. Big fan of old music. Yeah. I think I'm more of a generalist oh. over 60 years, gotcha. which is a difficult thing. So you want me to pull up some Tupac is what I'm hearing. <laughs> then I am a deep cuts guy. I, I think that I have I've sold you a false bill of goods. All right. I, I tell you what. I gave consideration to coming into this one, and I thought this is the, the angle that you're going to take. So You I thought just, I was going to wuss out. So I decided to go with something a little bit different this week let's get into that with deep cuts all right jake you ready for this i'm ready to talk stats yes i am all right i think you're going to get this one and i'm going to give you a few clues so we just talked about trey mancini and we just talked about to a certain regard, he's almost like a carbon copy of players that we already currently had on our teams in terms of being a Mark Trumbo or a Chris Davis, as it were. So uh, the song that I'm going to play for you is um, it, it is almost a carbon copy, um, a, a, as it were, of, uh, of another song. But I want you to specifically give me the indication of uh, who sung this given version uh, this version came out in the same year, um, in 1965, and uh, I'll, I'll play it. You should be able to get it right away. If not, I will give you the original artist, and then you'll be able to tell me right away who the alternate is. How about we go with that? Are you ready? As ready as I will be. All right. This is Hang On Sloopy. Yes. Now, do you know what version this is? 
No, you know who sang the original, right? All right, so who sang the original? It was the McCoys, right? Yeah. All right. So this is a famous, I'd say, 1960s rock blues band. And let's just say that they share a name um, with a uh, a fellow avian creature of ours. So this is a bird. It is a bird-based band, yes. I got nothing. Really? Nothing? Is it the birds? It is the yard birds. That's close. That is close. So we're going to go ahead and give this a... We're going to give this a partial credit because Jake English needs a win pretty much as bad as the Blue Jays do at this point. Ouch. So, Jake, uh, you just heard the yard birds version of uh, My Girl Sloopy. Uh, that compared to the McCoys, what are you feeling? Do you feel like that was a deep, better version or not? Funny story, they both came out the same year. They both went to number one of the charts in the same year. Um, but, of course, the McCoys, to this date, is the more widely known version. Yeah, but the thing is, if you look at the talent in the Yardbirds yeah. versus the talent in the McCoys, yeah. I feel like Hang On Sloopy is a sully of the Yardbirds' talent. That's a, that's versus, a fair point. Versus the, the high watermark of the McCoys. That's a good point. The the Yardbirds, of course, of course, who turned into the New Yard uh, Yardbirds, and then Led Zeppelin. I mean, come yep, on! Absolutely. If you look at the lineups that the Yardbirds had, woof. Yeah. Hang on, Sloopy, get out of here with that. Yeah. So, was that a decent one? Was that all the feels you got to little talk a little bit of music, talk about Zeppelin a little bit? Is that the kind of track that you want to take where it's like not obvious, but? You've actually heard the song before? I'm telling you, I don't think that I'm going to do very well with this deep tracks thing, which which makes me feel that going back to week one, I'm just going to turn this around on you uh-huh. come the all-star break. All right, so next... I might even be sandbagging at some point to make sure that I get this in. So what I'm hearing is I need to go with Beatles Deep Cuts and Monkeys Deep Cuts in the coming weeks. You're half right. Okay. <laughs> well, with that, if we've got the good in the Beatles and we've got the ugly in the monkeys, maybe we should fill in the bad with the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's right, it's time again for the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm going to go ahead and get started. My good for this week is a bit of an odd one. I'm going to go with Alec Asher. And yes, I know it was one start. And yes, I know it was the Blue Jays. But, dot, dot, dot. It's an important but. 6.1 innings pitched with three hits, a walk, a hit by pitch, and one earned run. This may be what we've been looking for, for the back end of the, of the rotation. If this is what we can get every fifth day from our fifth starter, we'll take it. Asher is someone we did not expect. In fact, it was someone who was acquired by the organization within the season. Now, I know, but dot, dot, dot. Asher had a 188 BABIP and an 80% (laughs) thank you and an 80% left on base percentage which is unsustainable I was getting there Scotty it is a small sample size but when you look at the fifth starter (laughs) thank you thank you for that when you look at the fifth starter candidates that we had I'd be happy to throw this guy in the mix and maybe just maybe he will have the Chaz Rowe two weeks of quality innings that Dan Duquette is good at finding. Scotty, what's your good? (laughs) My good for the week, of course, has to go back to Trey Trey, who I'm going to call for Trey Mancini. Isn't that Trey Trey Trey? We're going to go with Trey Trey like Tay Tay, but Trey Tay. I thought all all good things came in threes, Trey Trey Trey. That's possible. Um, Look, guy's killing the ball. Like When he gets up there and he actually gets to play, he's absolutely destroying the ball. 441 weighted runs created plus. 
1,429 slugging percentage. That's a lot. Uh, He's just destroying it right now. I mean, four home runs in four games. Yeah, okay. Like, bravo. Like, you are probably reaching the pinnacle of your career, and it's it's sad that you're never going to see these these greatness again. You're just taunting him. You're taunting him into better performance. I am. I'm literally saying, hey, Trey's mom, come at me. (laughs) Come at me, mom. (laughs) All right, let's go to the bad. My bad for this week is Mark Trumbo. Four hits, a walk, and nothing else to show for himself in 25 at-bats. Oh, except for seven strikeouts. Yeah. That's not good. Uh, my bad for the week is going to have to go to Manny Machado, who's been struggling at the plate Woof. pretty much since the beginning of the season, posting a 258 Woba and a 60 weighted runs created plus. Listen, when you are being outperformed by J.J. Hardy, stop. It's it it's it's a slow start to the season. Again, I realize small sample size, but Manny Machado, you're on notice. Hey, think about how great this team will be when he's firing on all cylinders. That's true. Let's go ahead and take a look at the ugly. Just think how bad Trey Mancini will be then. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Nothing will ever be bad again. I decided. All right, my bad for this week is the New York Yankees. Specifically, the New York Yankees winning seven straight games. Come on, guys. You were supposed to be bad this year. You were supposed to be a team I didn't have to worry about. You were supposed to be rebuilding after nothing but old man baseball. New York Yankees, walk into the light, my friends. Just go quietly into that good night. I don't have to worry about you anymore. Jake, there is one obvious ugly this week, and it comes back to that breaking ball that Tyler Wilson threw to Kendris Morales. I'm not even going to give ugly to Tyler Wilson. Tyler Wilson knows he's ugly, but that breaking ball that he threw in the ninth inning, Jake, you could have got up there and hit that ball 400 feet. That was maybe one of the worst pitches I have ever seen in Orioles pitcher thrown, and that takes a lot. So Tyler Wilson, your breaking ball in the ninth inning on Saturday it was ugly. I have a question for you, and this is important. Sure. Good and bad and the ugly. Yeah. Last year, we decided to give the Lifetime Achievement Award yes. to Ebaldo Jimenez. Yes. Kind of like the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award for Ugly in the Ravens uh, Correct. clubhouse. My question, can we award Ugly to Ebaldo Jimenez at any point this season? Or no. Are we, are we done? Did we say Lifetime Achievement Award? We did. No, it's not allowed. Read the fine print next time before you agree on this. All right. Well, there you have it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And some some will never be ugly again. All right. Want to blow the save? Let's do it. I want to close the show in an unusual fashion. I'm going to close the show in a family moment. You know, we've talked in the past couple of weeks about family. This this podcast started in many ways in tracking what we expected to be an awful team. And when that didn't happen, many other themes came out. And one of them was family, uh, the way that you experience Orioles baseball. A big family experience for me was my grandfather, uh, who's no longer with us, that Tradition is kept on in my younger brother, Jamie. He and I enjoy baseball uh, together, either showing up at the park, uh, watching it, and then calling each other or texting each other. Um, But he sent me a message this week, uh, which he followed up on Easter dinner in a disturbing fashion. A good friend of his has started listening to this podcast, Scott, and I question his taste. I question his judgment. So this very special moment, uh, this message goes out to uh, Jamie's friend, who I will call Beverage. And I will say, Beverage, you have so many better options out there. You can spend your time in so many better fashion. Uh, Don't do this. You're better than this. I mean, if we're going to talk family, we talked about 1979 before. So do we need to end with this? I think that seems appropriate. I bet you could answer this. My dad would literally kill me right now if I was playing this. Like, literally kill me. You are nothing but a disappointment. And I think that is representative of this show. Absolutely. 
All right, Jake, let, let's close this whole thing out. All right, well, that's our show. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that you can find this and our entire catalog of indispensable episodes at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. Birds Eye View is a proud member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. You can find this show on baltimoresportsreport.com slash network and also on baseballtalkradio.com, the home of great baseball talk. Birds Eye View is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. We'd appreciate a rating and a review. It really helps with what we call social proof about the show and encourages new listeners to check it out. Engage with us on social media. You can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Google Plus, and Snapchat. But the best way to get a hold of us is on Twitter, where we hold beasts with Adam Jones at Bird's Eye View B A L. And with that, Baltimore and beyond, I bid you all a fond adieu, adieu. Good night, Baltimore. Be safe out there. And let's go O's. We are family? Really? Yeah. They look really dirty. Wow. You know what? Let's just record this whole episode again. I thought I knew you. Yeah. I am your sister Sledge, so. It's over. Go home. Go.